Today's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and 17 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first." For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are going to be looking at this whole chapter this morning, so if you uh, don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you and turn it to page 1018. Uh, if you do have your Bible with you, take a look there at Second Peter 2. I didn't want to read the whole chapter just because that's a long time to stand, right? So we read part of it, and we're going to take a look at the middle section uh, as we make our way through this morning. And it is a long chapter, and, and normally I would break up a, a section like this into uh, a couple sermons at least, but to feel the uh, weight of what Peter's doing here um, as he takes what is the center, really the heart of this letter, uh, all of chapter two here, to just drive home something that was very important, uh, I want us to hit on that. I mean, you remember, right, that when they received this letter, uh, they just had it read to them. So as they heard it read, they were feeling the weight of this, and by God's grace, we're going to feel the weight of it this morning as well. Uh, so last week in chapter 1, uh, end of chapter 1, Peter was emphasizing the truthfulness, the authority, the sufficiency, the reliability, the, the divine authorship of the Word of God. And he pointed to his experience as an eyewitness to Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And he also pointed to the confirmation of the witness or the testimony of the apostles in the, in the, I'm sorry, the prophets in the Old Testament. And here in chapter 2, he kind of turns the coin over and takes a look at the other side. The clue is in verse 1, in the, in the but also. But false prophets also arose among the people. Um, again, remember that the chapter divisions uh, were not in the original, so sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. Uh, here, that break is a little less helpful because we, we miss kind of the flow of what he's saying. There's a just as that's implied here at the beginning of uh, chapter 2. Just as there were true prophets in the Old Testament, so true there were false prophets in the Old Testament. And just as 
there, you know, Peter would say, we and, and the other apostles are true teachers of God's word, so too there will arise among you those who are false. So we need to, we need to see that not only in terms of chapter 2 compared to chapter 1, but I, I think also letter 2 compared to letter 1. First Peter, the, the letter that we took a long time to look at, Peter was really emphasizing there what it looks like to live as holy people and, and hopeful people um, in our time of exile, in this time in which we wait for Jesus Christ to return, facing persecution. That was the, the essence of the letter of 1 Peter. 2 Peter, it's still about holiness and hope in exile while we wait for Christ's return. But again, he is driving home the concern that he has about false teachers rising up in the church. So 1 Peter, he's not like, you know, we got to take it to those persecutors. He's, he's just talking about how to live faithfully in that reality. Here, he is driving home the need to address with great uh, seriousness the reality of false teachers in the church. And so the question is, do we feel that same kind of weight? I mean, Peter's saying... The greatest problem, as you look at these two letters together, the greatest problem in his day and age was not the persecution that the church was facing from without. It was the false teaching that was rising up from within. And the same is true for us today. It's not the persecution that's being faced around the world that is the greatest danger to the church. Persecution is going to come. It's the very truth of Scripture that is needed to bolster and support those who are being persecuted around the world. If that's lost... What hope do they have? It's not the consumerism that we face here in America. That is like a, a, just, just an, a, a, an insect eating away at the roots of everything that we need to grow is consumerism. It's the, it's the air that we breathe without realizing how toxic it is. That's not the greatest danger to the church. We need the truth of God's word to expose the, 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 the false ideas that are bound up with the consumer culture in which we live. So do we feel the weight of the reality of false teaching in the church? Peter's burden, his heart is heavy for the souls of the saints in the church to which he was writing, especially those who were new converts. You pick that up uh, later in the section when he talks about those who are barely escaping. This is verse 20. Now, back up in, uh, well, anyway, you'll find it later, because we're going to talk, talk about it later. You know, those, are, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. It is a terrible thing when people walk away from the faith. That's, that's in this section. That's what we're talking about. As we talk about false teachers, we're going to see that we're talking about those who once followed the way of truth, have turned aside from it, and are now leading others to do the same. That is a terrible and dreadful thing that ought to weigh heavily on our hearts as we think about this. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul gives a, a graphic picture of it in 1 Timothy when he talks about those who have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, not you know we're not nautical folks probably but you can you can picture that idea in the in the first century of a church being uh, of a boat being you know brought into the the, uh, the the rocks near the shore and just disintegrated. We think about John in First John who who talks about those who were among us but they went out from us because they were never truly of us. Those are real people, sons and and daughters and mothers and fathers and friends who were once part of a Christian community, seem to be 
members of that Christian community in terms of their faith in Jesus Christ, and then they leave. And so there ought to be a real sense of burden as we look at this passage, not, weary, not only wariness, not only concern about false teachers, but a real burden for those who have left and who are being led astray. So all of us, not just pastors, not just the elders, but especially all of you need to pay attention, need to be greatly concerned about the reality of false teaching in the church. And we all together ought to have a burden for those who are being led astray. So three things we need to understand about false teachers from this passage. Uh, First, the presence, the popularity, and the empty promises of false teachers. That's the first thing we're going to hit on. The presence, the popularity, and ultimately the empty promises of false teachers. Secondly, the sinister strategy of false teachers. The sinister strategy of false teachers. And then third, the tragic life and dreadful end of all who are under the wrath of God. Tragic life and dreadful end of all who are under the wrath of God. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this long passage, we do pray that that you would help us. Lord, that you would help us uh, catch the things that are of central importance here, not miss the, the thrust of Peter's burden and his argument and his concern. Lord, would you help us to receive these truths? Lord, to that end, we pray that you would be working by your spirit in us, that your word might live in us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the presence, popularity, and empty promises of false teachers. Verse 1, Peter says that false teachers will always be present among us. False teachers, verse 1, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. What is a false teacher? Peter says, again, they bring in destructive heresies. Now, that word heresy as it was used in Peter's day, is a little bit different than the way that it came to be used in the uh, early centuries of the church and down to this very day. In Peter's day, that word heresy simply meant teachers bringing in their own ideas of what's true. So teachers having their own opinion, their own ideas, their own notions of what's true and teaching that as truth. The same idea is seen in verse 3, where it talks about them exploiting with false words. It's the same idea. Taking things that are not true, ideas that have been made up in their own heads, and teaching them as truth to God's people. Kevin DeYoung offers a helpful definition of a false teacher. He writes this, A false teacher is someone who snatches up sheep. He references John ten twelve draws disciples away from the gospel, and he references Acts 20, 28, opposes the truth, and he references 2 Timothy 3, 8, and leads people to make shipwreck of the faith, that's 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, and embrace ungodliness, that's 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17. So let me read it again. A false teacher is someone who snatches up sheep, 
draws disciples away from the gospel, opposes the truth, and leads people to make shipwreck of the faith and embrace ungodliness. There's the definition of a false teacher. The thing that we can't miss that Peter says here is that they are among you. They're among you. Dick Lucas talked about the fact that in Israel there were plenty of false prophets. We just don't know their names today. But there are plenty of false prophets. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that more often than not, the false prophets outnumber the true prophets. And in the same way, there will be false teachers among the church. Peter's saying it's always going to be this way. We're always going to have to be on guard. They will be large in number, perhaps. And they will be present. They will be subtle. Take a look at verse 1 again. He says, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. They will seem to be one of us. Jump down to verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you, which is probably a reference to to communion, to the Lord's table, the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And Peter's saying again, this will characterize the church in every age. Jesus warned about this. In John, I'm sorry, Matthew 7:15, Jesus writes, "Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves." Paul and to the Ephesian elders, and it, you know, when Paul leaves Ephesus and he leaves the elders in Ephesus, you read this great speech and then he says this terrifying and really sad thing to them in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. False teachers will always be present in the church. They will also be immensely popular. Again, look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. Why will many follow? Because they tell people what they want to hear. Right? I, I, I thought about this as, as Dale was, was setting up offering. He talked about the fact that I often remind us that whenever we make a good thing, even a good thing, into an ultimate thing, it will ultimately destroy us. And I think that what false teachers do just kind of broadly speaking, is take that good thing and say it is okay to make it an ultimate thing. God wants it to be an ultimate thing in your life. So whether it's success or, or significance in the eyes of other people or, or, or wealth or security or health or whatever, good things, God wants them to be ultimate things in your life. And so just take my word for it. Just send me your money. And I'll make sure that can be an ultimate thing in your life too. It's a popular message in any age. 52,000 people are attending worship services this morning at Joel Osteen's church. 52,000 people. He's a false teacher. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. She has sold over 20 million books. It's a popular message. But the promises they make are empty. They're empty. What do they promise? Well, what do these guys promise? Take a look at verse uh, 19. Verse 19, they promise them freedom. Freedom from what? Well, take a look over at chapter 3. 
In chapter 3, verse 17, Peter refers to these false teachers in this way. You, therefore, beloved, there's Peter's shepherd heart for these people. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. These are people that are saying, as we already talked about from 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, there's the people that, that are saying, Jesus isn't going to come back. He's not going to judge. Listen, you've, you've made a profession of faith. Your soul is now saved. This is kind of an early form of Gnosticism, right? Your soul is saved. Your spirit's fine. So you can do with your body whatever you want. There's not going to be a judgment to come. It's lawlessness. It's freedom from God's law. You can pursue whatever brings you pleasure, without regard for the word of God. That's the promise. Peter says it is empty. Take a look at verse 17. These are waterless springs. You expect a spring to produce water. These promises are empty promises. Waterless springs. Mists driven by a storm. When a storm's blowing in, you expect a lot of rain. There's just mist. Jude 12, Jude refers to them as waterless clouds swept along by winds, as fruitless trees in late autumn. When you'd expect fruit to be there, it's not there. Empty promises. So, summarizes first point. False teachers will always be, to quote Tom Clancy, a clear and present danger. False teachers will always be a clear and present danger in the church. They will always be immensely popular. They will make promises that are quite appealing, but in the end, those promises are empty, and as we'll see in a moment, they are destructive. Not just empty, destructive. Second, the uh, sinister strategy of false teachers. The sinister strategy. What we're going to see here is that false teachers deceive, they seduce, They exploit, and then they destroy. Deceive, seduce, exploit, and ultimately destroy. So deceive, verse 3. Peter says they exploit with false words. Verse 13. Peter says they are reveling in their deceptions. Now, again, we, their deceptions was essentially, you can do whatever you want without regard for Christ, God's word because Jesus is not going to return to judge you. I want to suggest that the deceptions of false teachers, just in general, they pretty much always boil down to two questions and an assertion. The first question, did God really say And the second question, didn't God say? Now, it's important that those questions are on your mind whenever you're listening to someone teach. Somebody says something, you're like, wait a minute, did God really say that? Or, or wait a minute, didn't God say this? That we, you need to think that way. You need to be asking those questions when you're listening to teaching. But when you hear a teacher say, did God really say Did God really say that you have to marry only a person of the opposite sex? 
as long as you feel love for that person, isn't it okay? Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't have sex before marriage? Or didn't God say he wants his children to prosper? Did God really say? Didn't God say? Those are the two questions. They're always followed by the assertion, you will not surely die. They go back to the garden. Did God really say, flip side, didn't God say? You will not surely die. There'll be no consequence. You can live outside God's law. You'll be happy. You'll be fine. You'll have your best life now. It's deception of the highest order. How do false teachers get people to believe it? They seduce. Secondly, they seduce. I'm using the word seduce deliberately. It's interesting. Peter here touches on really two key areas. He talks about sexual sin and seduction, and he talks about uh, deceit and greed and financial exploitation. So even though you can look at different categories, greater, more categories, I should say, when it comes to false teaching, these are the two that Peter narrows in on, I think for good reason, because you can look through church history and see that, that it's, it's greed and, and sexual sin that is often at the center of so much of this kind of false teaching that infiltrates the church. And so seduce. What does Peter say in verse 2? Many will follow their sensuality. What does he say in verse 14? They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, and entice, or literally, the Greek word literally means lure with bait. Unsteady souls. Verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping. Now, there's no way of knowing the precise nature of the sexual sin that they were dealing with. Again, false teachers throughout history have encouraged sexual sin. They have encouraged taking what the Bible says about human sexuality and just chucking it to the side in place for something more immediately gratifying. An example of that uh, in our day and age is Nadia Bowles-Weber. Nadia Bowles-Weber is the New York Times bestselling author and uh, founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints. Her most recent book is titled Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Her argument in the book is that the church, I'm sorry, that we ought to abandon what the church has taught about sex and gender. That, That calling for sexual purity, for honoring God's law with respect to to human sexuality, that it actually brings harm. It's not helpful. Calling on people to repent for sexual sin is unnecessary. Her, her, her assertion is that we need to take the biblical sexual ethic and burn it the blank to the ground and start over. She writes this in the book, I'm here to tell you, unless your sexual desires are for minors, and she doesn't stop there, or your sexual choices are hurting you or those you love, those desires are not something to struggle with. They are something to listen to. What we should be concerned about, she says, is each other's sexual flourishing. And she says, whatever sexual flourishing looks like for you, that's what I want to see happen 
in your life. It's, it's a seductive message. What's especially tragic, however, is when that kind of teaching, that kind of mindset is present within church leaders who verbally would never say that they ascribe to that kind of teaching, and yet they are the ones that have the eyes full of adultery, that are insatiable for sin, and that then turn and prey on the most vulnerable among the flock. Rachel Dunhollander is a hero for calling out and accusing uh, Larry Nasser, the, the uh, physician who abused so many in USA Gymnastics and at Michigan State University. She's also a hero for pointing to and calling out so much of the abuse that takes place within the church, the very institution where people ought to be looked to as trustworthy are places where people find that they are abused. Too much power, too much isolation, not enough accountability, not enough transparency, not enough safeguards, and people with eyes full of adultery who are insatiable for sin entice as laying out bait the most vulnerable among us. The strategy of false teachers is to deceive, it is to to seduce. Third, it is to exploit. So take a look at verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed. Verse 15. They are like Balaam who loved gain from wrongdoing. Greed. Greed. That leads to exploitation. I don't know if you've seen the, the film American Gospel. I, I was thinking about this the other day. We need to own some copies here in the church library so people can check them out and watch them. You can stream it. I think Vimeo, Amazon for a couple bucks if you want. I really encourage you to watch this film. What this film does is take the first hour and just unpack the true, unvarnished, once and for all gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in the last hour and 15 minutes or so, it shifts over to point out the hypocrisy and the deceit and the greed of the prosperity gospel, of the word of faith movement. It takes a look at false teachers such as Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church Movement, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, T.D. Jakes. The fact that you recognize these names is an indication of the level of infiltration of the kind of false teaching they promote in the church. What does the prosperity gospel teach? That it's always God's will for a Christian to be healthy, for instance. And if you're sick, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. And so Benny Hinn will say it's as easy to get healed as it is to get forgiven. False teaching of the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement says that if, if you, that you can attract positive things to yourself through positive thinking. Right, so Joel Osteen will say you need to, to refer to yourself as the I am and say to yourself, I am. I am successful. I am beautiful. I am strong. I am smart. And he says, because whatever follows the I am 
is going to come looking for you. It's a word of faith. It's false teaching. It's always God's will for his people to be rich. I mean, this is the one that we're so often hearing about. But, I mean, just the, the scope of it is mind-boggling. There was an Inside Edition uh, expose from back in May in which they looked at Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland. Jenny, Jesse Duplantis is Kenneth Copeland's sidekick. Jesse Duplantis said he's telling his church he wants them to buy him a new jet. A $54 million jet because his $4 million jet just won't do anymore. And his rationale is this. If Jesus were here today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. It's, 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 it would be laughable if it were a made-up story. But it's true. And people that don't have money are giving money in order for that very kind of lie to be fed. It's a word of faith heresy and it destroys. False teachers deceive, seduce, exploit, but ultimately destroy. Peter refers to these, after all, as destructive heresies in verse 1. Again, watch American gospel and and watch the contrast between those who who are sick and who are suffering and who are poor and have been sucked into that. How terrifying and grievous it is to see that take place. Destroys individual lives, it destroys individual churches, it destroys entire denominations. But it also destroys the witness of the church in the world. And so Peter says in verse two, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. He's talking about outsiders there who are looking in on the church, looking in on the hypocrisy, the false teaching, the, the carnage, and saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And and what's sad is that this, you know what we're exporting to the rest of the world when it comes to Christian teaching? It's the prosperity gospel. It's the word of faith movement. That's the quote-unquote gospel that is going to the nations right now. By and large, more than the true gospel is going to the nations. And so people around the world are believing that. They're finding that the promises are empty. They're rejecting that. And then what's left? Destroys the witness of the church and the world. It destroys individual lives. Third, let's look at the tragic life and dreadful end of all those who are under the wrath of God, not just the false teachers. Tragic life and the dreadful end. First, God will protect his own, right? There's that assurance in this passage. We didn't have it on the screen. You've got it in your Bibles in front of you. Take a look at verse 4. We're going to read verse 4 through the first half of verse 10. And, And this is one of those times when you're like, wow, this raises a lot of questions in my mind, and I have to say we don't have time to deal with them right now. But I do hope that if you want to, you'll schedule a time we can talk about what's going on in this passage. There's going to be a fair amount of I don't knows as I talk to you about it, but it's worth exploring. For now, let me just read it so we get the point of what Peter's saying. Verse 4. And again, what you're going to see here are really four ifs and then a then. It's a, it's a typical uh, rabbinic form of argument where he, he builds from the lesser to the greater. If this, if this, if this, if this, then, a, then certainly this. 
All right, that's what's happening here. So verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what do we make of that? Lots of things we could talk about there. Who are the angels that he's referring to? I think the point we need to not miss is that even angels will be judged. Right? The fall extends to the supernatural realm. Even fallen angels will be judged. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, God takes sin seriously. It was judged in Noah's day. There was an opportunity for repentance. It was rejected. But God did judge. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. You know, in the first century, it's said that there was still smoke rising from the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. God will judge sexual sin. And then verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now we're going to see how that if refers to God's rescue of the righteous. However, I think it's worth noting a couple things about Lot. What's not mentioned here, but what is mentioned when you read the story, is that when the visitors, the two visitors, the angelic visitors came, and the men of Sodom wanted to rape them. He pleaded with them not to do it. There was a concern for them. And there was also, of course, his petitioning, his praying for the righteous before the fire rained down. So if God didn't spare the angels, and if God preserved Noah, though the earth was judged, and if the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were turned to ashes. And if he rescued Lot from among them, and then here's the point, verse 9 and first part of verse 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God will protect his own. But what of the false teachers? We're going to end by taking a look just real quick at what this passage says about them. It says first that the wrath of God awaits them. Again, you see it back in verse 1. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The end will come, and when the end comes, it will come swiftly and surely. Verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The wrath of God awaits those who willingly mislead God's people, those who are numbered among the church, into their error. The wrath of, God's, the wrath of God awaits them. But secondly, the weight of his wrath is felt by them even now. It's interesting to see that in this passage. Something of the weight of God's wrath is experienced by them even now. Verse 9, God keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there's a sense in which the weight of God's punishment is on them even now. Verse 13, they suffer wrong 
as the wage for their wrongdoing. There's this sense in which even now some of that is being suffered. Verse 19, they themselves are slaves of corruption. And so even, and I think not just of the false teachers here, but I think of those who have followed them, who have bought the lie. This will bring you happiness. This will bring you joy. This is, this, believe this, buy this, give me this, and you'll have your best life now. Even for them, there's maybe a fainting glimmer of satisfaction. Uh, what seemed to be a, a cool drink of water. What, what seemed like a bite into good fruit but then is found to be nothing but gravel in the mouth and vinegar in the gut. Even that is experienced now in part. How did this happen? This is the third thing we need to see about these false teachers and all who follow them and are under the wrath of God. They've forsaken God's way. What does that imply? They were once following it. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Just feel the weight of that for a moment. I don't know Benny Hinn's heart or Joel Osteen's heart or any of these other guys' heart. I don't know their history. I haven't read their history. But it may well be that at one point in their lives, they were, maybe they had made a, a profession of faith seemed as though they looked at Jesus for their salvation. They were a vibrant part of their church. And then what, what came to be seen eventually is that, that that wasn't genuine, that wasn't real, there wasn't a, a heart change. And then this church, that church or the church, eventually became the means of getting what they really wanted. And then they turned around and promised the same to those who would follow and so many of those who believe this false teaching, they're, they're people, well, they're people like us. People like people you know, who they've said, I, I'm a Christian, I believe the gospel. And they've gotten plugged in, maybe plugged in heavily to church. And it seems as though it was real, but that eventually you see that they, they turn away and there was, there was never any heart change there. That maybe church was just a, a better means of getting what they were hoping to find somewhere else. And then they turned away. It helps us make sense of this difficult passage that we read at the end. I'm going to read it and touch on it. And again, this is another section where if you want to talk more about it, give me a call. Let's get together. Verse 20 and following, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Peter's not saying there you can lose your salvation. What he is saying is that for those who never had a genuine heart change, they heard it, 
They, they made some kind of affirmation of it. They were part of a church and they seemed to be living it. Eventually they turned away and once having turned away, made the decision, been there, done that with regard to Christianity. They returned to their old way of life, never to look back again. That is a tragic end. And we ought to feel the weight of that. So many lost who once seemed found. So many blind that we once thought could see. No wonder the strong plea here from Peter that we take guard. So, quick summary, false teachers will be present, they will be popular, but they offer empty promises. Second, their strategy is sinister, deceive, seduce, exploit, destroy, but never forget the tragic life and the dreadful end of those who are under the wrath of God. How do we apply this in our lives? We're going to wrap up with this real quick. First, pay close attention. This is for you. Pay close attention to what's taught and reject that which isn't true. The key word back in verse 1 was that word secretly. You see, it's not just the, 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 the global examples that I gave of the Joel Osteens and others. These are people who secretly, Peter says, rise up from among you. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's taught. What does that mean? Mark, do I need to be a Bible scholar? No, you just need to read your Bible. You just need to read your Bible. Just in the course of your everyday you know, life, make it part of your rhythm that you are in the Word of God every day. You will find that it sinks in and then alarm bells begin to go off when you hear things that don't align with it. When the did God really say and the didn't God say don't align with what God did say and didn't say, you begin to sense it. So yes, come to discipleship classes on Sunday morning. You need that. But don't forget the need to simply be in God's word daily. And then ask yourself a couple questions. Just, just two questions to always ask when you, when you hear someone teach. What's the source and who's at the center? What's the source and who's at the center? Is the source the word of God or is the source the opinion of the teacher? And then who's at the center? Is it him or her or you, or is it Christ and him crucified? What's the source? Who's at the center? Pay close attention to what's being taught. Secondly, pray for false teachers and those who follow them. Pray for them. I posted, or I had posted to Facebook a couple days ago. Actually, I think it was yesterday. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the brief mention of Costi Hinn, the nephew of Benny Hinn, and his leaving the the Hin Empire, and because he heard the gospel and put his faith in Jesus Christ. It's being reported that Benny Hinn has forsaken his false teaching. I think there are good reasons to be suspicious. He's made those kinds of claims before when he's been cornered. I think the proof will be when he sells everything and gives, gives what he has to the poor, among other things. But imagine if that were to happen. Imagine if Joel Osteen were to stand up in front of his 52,000 and repent preach a Christ-centered sermon, and then turn off the cameras. We need to be praying for false teachers. We also need to be praying for those who are being led astray. 
Pay close attention to what's taught. Pray for false teachers and trust God's promise to deliver you. Trust God's promise to deliver. Trust his promise to deliver you. We didn't sing this Getty hymn this morning, but I love this song. Those he saves, a verse from it. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Trust that God will preserve you. He will protect you. And trust that God will protect his own. That he will protect his church. Listen, if that last point of application to you feels anticlimactic, like, okay, I'll trust that God will preserve his people. Okay. Again, come back to the weight and the burden that Peter felt when he wrote this letter. His burden is that they know this false teaching is going to come in. Folks are going to be led astray. It's grievous. Be prepared. Trust that God will preserve his church. And if that's not a burden in your heart, then let me encourage you to pray that your love for Jesus will grow to the point that you love the things that he loves, namely his church. And your concern will be for the things that concern Jesus, and your zeal will be for the things for which Jesus is zealous, the glory of God and the preservation of his church on earth until the day of his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving Second Peter. We're thankful that we have it. We thank you for the warnings that it, it gives us. Lord, we're also thankful for the reminders, the, the ones we didn't even get to touch on this morning. Lord, as we heard about Noah, we're reminded that there is a way of escape for all who look to you for their salvation. There is a way to escape the judgment that is to come. And Lord, for those who are teaching that that judgment won't come and you can have everything you want right now. And for those who have followed those lies into darkness. And for those of us who by your grace are being kept. We ask, oh God, that your name would be magnified. That your church would be preserved. And your glory would shine over all the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.